Hi, this is Sarah Elkins, author of Your Stories Don't Define You, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Sarah Elkins. Sarah is a communications coach who specializes in storytelling. She's a Gallup-certified finder, keynote speaker, author, and professional musician and podcaster. She knows the key to satisfaction and happiness in life is healthy relationships. And the keys to healthy relationships are self-reflection and communication. And she delights in using her expertise to help others tell their stories to get what they want from business and life. Sarah's here to talk about her book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Well. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be on this show. It's a pleasure to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? My grandmother on my father's side. She was just brilliant and a scholar, and she traveled, and she spoke like four different languages. There was something about the way that she carried herself. She told me one time as a teacher, she said, I know a lot of my students don't like me, but they respect me. And there was something about that that really stuck with me because she wasn't so devoted to people liking her, but she was devoted to making a positive impact. And and so she really had a lot of influence on me. What did she teach? Well, she was actually a Hebrew school teacher. So she taught at a Jewish day school. She spoke Yiddish, Hebrew, German, and French, as well as English as her native language. Can you remember a time when you made a decision, maybe early in your career? where that strength came from based upon your grandmother's example and perhaps her stories? You know, I wish it happened early in my career. I wish it happened when I was a teenager. Unfortunately, like many things that we hear, it didn't really sink in until the first time I decided that it didn't matter if a person liked me. And that was, there are actually a couple stories about that in my book, It was when I was working for a woman who really didn't like me. And I was so puzzled by it because I think of myself as a pretty likable and approachable person. And there was a point where I finally decided that it didn't matter that she didn't like me as long as we were being an impactful team. And I can tell you that it was this aha moment that it didn't matter. And I thought about my grandmother's comment And then I looked at the evidence, which was that our team was being very effective in terms of our project. It was a huge project to improve public access to technology across the state of Montana. And we were working with libraries all over the state as our partners to do that. And it was a very positive and impactful project. So once I looked at the evidence that the impact was positive, I started to realize that it didn't matter if somebody didn't like me. And it brought me immediately back to that comment from my grandmother. And I've held on to it ever since. Even with coaching clients, they kind of have to like you to a certain extent in order to be effective. But there are times when I just have to be direct and I know they're not going to like hearing what I have to say. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to have a positive impact once they absorb it. 
that's such an important point, Sarah. Let me just see if I, I get that sufficiently. It's not that we're saying we want people to dislike us or we don't care whether they like us or not. It's just not the primary way of evaluating whether a relationship's going well, a work relationship's going well, or a project. They're better indicators because it's not always going to be that way, especially when there are differences of opinion and conversations and decisions that have to be made that can't satisfy everyone. Exactly. Exactly. And the strategy I use for that is I keep this thought in my head a lot, whether I'm dealing with employees, a a boss, or even family members. I think love is easy, but like is hard. And so I try to approach everything with love, which I know sounds weird. I'm not a super touchy-feely person. I'm not particularly sentimental. But for some reason, when I keep that in my head, that love is easy, but like is hard, it helps me approach things with love and compassion, even if it's somebody that I don't necessarily like. And who may or may not necessarily be behaving in ways that are likable. And they may be putting that out as a way to dominate a relationship or conversation or interaction. Oh boy, you said it. <laughs> it's, it's generally a control issue. When somebody doesn't like you, it, it usually has something to do with control. So yes, well said. <laughs> so in the book, one of the things that you talk about are rock star moments that each of us, even if we don't think of ourselves as rock stars in our lives, we have had moments that are really, really outstanding. What's the benefit of looking back and identifying some of those rock star moments? Well, first of all, everyone needs to remember that they're good at something. I've seen a lot of issues with people not feeling relevant, especially now. When they lose their job, they suddenly think that they've lost their relevance. So being able to look back and pinpoint specific things that you felt really satisfied in what you did so that you can, again, find evidence that you are relevant and that what you've done has had impact. So I call them rock star moments because I sing in a couple of bands and that's what I associate with that satisfaction is that feeling of stepping off a stage and thinking that you totally nailed it. Sarah, have you found that once you've identified that moment and the feeling that comes with it in one area of your life, it's easier to find in other areas of your life? Well, even after a keynote or even a workshop, walking away and just, you know, that fist pump, like, ah, yeah totally nailed it. And everyone has had that feeling, but they don't necessarily embrace it. And I think it's really important that we embrace that because what it does is it helps us identify what we really find satisfying in our lives. And there are lots of things that we're good at, but that doesn't necessarily mean we find satisfaction in it. Like I'm really good at doing laundry, but (laughs) do I I find great satisfaction in it? Not so much. So there's some people who find it really easy to do budget reconciliations and it just comes easily to them and others who struggle with it and the ones who do it easily, maybe that's what they want to focus on, but maybe it's just something that they're doing as a means to get into a more satisfying and impactful aspect of their job responsibilities. Is that kind of the same idea? It can be for sure. I mean, a lot of people get stuck in a position of doing things because they're really good at them but that doesn't allow them exposure into finding what else they're good at. 
And I find it greatly satisfying when I make something that I that I didn't necessarily want to do, but I make it and I work really hard and I don't think I'm very good at it, but I do it and I find it satisfying. But that is not something that I think is sustainable. When you have to work really hard at doing something, you can find it satisfying once, but if you have to continue to work really hard at it because it's not natural, it doesn't come instinctively for you, I don't think that's something that's sustainable in terms of finding satisfaction. So it's kind of the, the flip side of that same coin. You can be really good at something and not find, find it satisfying. Or you can be bad at something, work really hard, find it satisfying when you accomplish it, but it's not necessarily something that you want to continue to do if you don't have a natural instinct for it. Another thing that I got from reading your book is that there are different levels of stories. There are superficial stories about what happened in your day, but really don't have much impact. There's the level of story that we were just talking about that are really significant. These rock star moments that lead to rock star feelings of satisfaction and pride and recognition of what we bring to situations that adds a lot of value. And then there are stories of identity. And identity is really something that is part of the storyteller tradition from ancient Greek and Roman mythology to biblical times to Chaucer, Shakespeare, and even modern day performing artists who are singing stories that help people identify with the best qualities in ourselves or common struggles that we have with loneliness and breakup and relationships and isolation, especially amplified during this pandemic lockdown. As someone who's both a professional storyteller a business coach, as well as a performing artist. What's your view on how stories help us identify with qualities that we either recognize in ourselves or aspire to? Well, let's start with how people get there. I think one of the things we have to learn as we age is we have to really identify our values. You know, Simon Sinek calls it your why, but I like using, I like couching this in action words. So understanding how you want to be perceived by people and being able to align your behaviors with how you want to be seen. So for instance, if you want to be seen as a considerate person and you're walking your dog and you let the dog go on somebody's yard and you don't pick up after him, then you're not going to be seen as considerate. And even if nobody sees you and nobody sees you do it, you're still going to have that disconnect because you know it's not considerate behavior to let your dog go in somebody else's yard or in a public place where people are going to maybe step in it and track it into their homes. So I think it starts with understanding that aspect of your character. How do you want to be perceived and how can you live a life that's in alignment with that? And then you start thinking about the stories that demonstrate those values And you can see them from very early on in your life. But there are some people that really struggle with knowing which stories demonstrate those values, especially if they're feeling really low, their confidence isn't where it should be, they're depressed. So what I always recommend is to ask somebody you trust to tell a story about you that demonstrates those qualities. And sometimes they'll come up with a story that demonstrates qualities that you hadn't even considered. That then once you hear that story, you can embrace that quality because if somebody saw it in you enough to tell that story, it means it's there. And if you 
if you start thinking in terms of your personal narrative, what stories are you sharing? Then you start thinking about what that means to the people who are listening to them. So for instance, if you are constantly telling stories about a boss that was cruel to you or abusive or and every boss or 90% of the bosses that you've had are like that, and your friend says, oh yeah, every time you have a job, you get mistreated. You have to think about what that says about you and your narrative because the only common person in all of those stories is you. So again, it comes back to how are you being perceived by the people around you? What stories are you telling? And how are those impacting your career and your personal life? Does that answer your question? Yes, because it really gets to the stories that we give attention to. And our attention brings them to the forefront. And I think of how a lot of times stories are extremely useful in helping get to know someone. And where we're doing that more and more these days is interviewing, where people are moving around. And it's particularly important to be able to tell stories well in an interview process, because that's how you convey a message, a value system, traits about your personal qualities that you want to get across rather than saying, I'm going to be the best candidate you ever meet. That doesn't hold as much weight as dimensionalizing it and giving it a story. Haven't you found that to be true in interviews where you've been asked maybe even terrible questions, but been able to give a really good answer that helped give you an advantage? Well, you know, my least favorite question is in the book. It's tell me about yourself. I will never understand why people ask that question because it doesn't give you any context. And you don't even have to be a grammarian to recognize that tell me about yourself isn't a question. What else makes it a terrible part of an interview? I really don't like that question because it's not specific and you don't learn enough about a person who doesn't know how to share a story. The advantage of having a handful of stories in your back pocket, or I call it a story portfolio, is that when somebody asks you such a general question, you can then tell a story that demonstrates who you are without having to answer that question as in, well, I was born in Washington, D.C. And then when I was six, I moved to Denver. And then when I was eight, we moved to Los Angeles. And that doesn't tell you much about me. But if I answer the question with, well, I went to four different elementary schools, but in second grade, I met this woman named Amy and her grandmother was Taiwanese and she wouldn't let me use a fork when I went to visit her. So I learned how to use chopsticks when I was six. And I had to go home and teach all my family how to more appropriately use chopsticks because, you know, you can't hold them so close to the front. You have to hold them further to the back of the chopstick. And I, to this day, I'm very close with this woman and she's the only person that I've been in contact with in, in terms of school and peers for that long. Sarah, how about an example of how a story portfolio came to serve someone who's been to one of your workshops? Oh, yes. I love that question. I was doing a workshop for the Montana Hospital Association and Jeff was an executive with a medical facility and was attending that. And he mentioned during one of the breaks that he struggled to connect his values with his work with his employees. So he knew that his values really aligned very well with the medical facility that he was working for, that he was directing but he knew that he was struggling to connect with employees 
and align those values with them and make sure that they understood. So we started with the story portfolio by looking at an era that really was integral in his becoming the executive with this organization. And it had to do with the loss of his father. So during the year that his father was sick, he was in and out of a medical facility a lot. And at the time, he was an executive at another facility, but it wasn't the same kind of treatment. And shortly after his father died, he got into, he started studying more about that other kind of medical facility and decided that that's really where he wanted to be because he knew he could have a bigger positive impact. So it actually led to a career change for him. It did. And on top of that, once we started digging, I I took a few minutes after the workshop with him to start digging into a specific incident where he was dealing with the facility's operations manager, who was very good and understood everything about the operations of that facility. And he developed this close connection with him. And he told me a story about how this person had a conversation with him about his father that was done so well. And he also told me a story of how he witnessed this person interacting with his employees, the operations director. And I said, that's a really pivotal story. So you need to write that down, add it to your story portfolio. Because at some point, you're going to be able to share that with your employees, at least one at a time, to let them know why you are where you are and why it matters to you. And One of the most rewarding things that happened after that workshop, he followed up with me about two months later. He said that he shared that story at a small staff meeting and got teary, like his eyes welled up. And he said, I was so embarrassed. I wasn't sure how they were going to take it. But within minutes of that meeting ending, he had at least four people come up and thank him for demonstrating that level of vulnerability and for sharing the story of why he was where he was. And he felt so much more connected to his staff. The the email just, it almost made me cry. So, and like I said, I'm not a particularly sentimental person, but hearing that from him was just a powerful message. I can imagine the relief of him not feeling like he had to put up a front or keep distant from people and being able to share. This is something that drove him, that close connection he had with his father. And what his life and his the loss of that relationship or the loss of his father, how that impacted him and caused him to reflect on things. And that's one of the ways to really let people get to know you is sharing things that are deeply meaningful, not necessarily, you know, in a coffee break, but I'm sure there was an appropriate situation where he was able to share with his team something that drove him. That's a really key way to use stories to develop stronger relationships with people. Now, you had mentioned the story of how you dealt with somebody who was not being friendly with you, and you used a technique I'd love for you to share with all of us listening. And you call it in the book, the 10-year video frame. Can you give us some context and then a recap of how that helped you deal with this person who not only wasn't being nice because it was maybe just her personality, but she was actively being obstructive to your work and didn't want to see you succeed. Oh my gosh, that story gets me anxious just thinking about it. (laughs) Yes, that was a game changer. This strategy that my friend 
started with me and that I fleshed out, of course, it really was a game changer for me. I was in a work situation where my boss was, you're right, she was actively obstructing my work. It was a really difficult relationship. And as I mentioned in the book, we were a very successful team despite that because the three of us on the team were devoted to the success of it because we knew what a positive impact it would have on communities across the state. But yes, she was actively abusive to me. Some of the things she said to me would just curl your toes if you heard it. But there was a time when she had scheduled a, an evaluation and it was, it was a six-month evaluation, which normally they were annual. But she decided she needed to follow up with me because things weren't improving the way that she thought that they should. At the last minute, she invited her boss to sit in on this evaluation. And when I asked her why she had invited this person, she said, I can invite whoever I want. That, of course, set me off wondering what the heck was going to happen in this meeting. So a few minutes before the meeting, I went outside just to take a breath and breathe and try to calm myself down because my anxiety level was through the roof. I could feel myself flushing and my heart rate going up. I was so nervous about this meeting. And I called my friend who is a Pilates guru. She's just this amazing woman, Marcia Polis. And she said, Sarah, think about this. Imagine there's a video camera in the room with you and it's recording all the interactions between you and these women. And imagine that you have to watch that interaction in a year, five years, or 10 years. And think about how you want to see yourself then. Think about how you want to remember this moment and how you acted in that room. And I thought about it for a second and I thought, okay, okay, I'll do that. That sounds very reasonable. And as I walked into the meeting, I wanted to give myself some cues. So I decided to focus on three words that would represent my behavior in 10 years when I watched this video. And those words were grace, compassion, and dignity. And my thought process very quickly was grace because I didn't want to appear upset or defensive, compassion because I knew that my boss had her own issues and that there was a reason she was behaving this way because no one just becomes or behaves in that negative way just randomly. That wasn't her instinct. She was behaving that way for a reason. I couldn't possibly know the history. And then dignity, because I was not going to be stepped on. I wanted to hold myself high when I walked out of that room. So I sat in the room and every time she would make some sort of attack, which the whole list, she had a laundry list of all these things that I had done wrong, and I'm air quoting done wrong, because they were very, very personal. And none of them had anything to do with the actual work that I was doing. So she would say something about miscommunication we had and Maybe she would say something that came across as I was disrespectful or she described me one time as being uh, resistant to authority, which immediately popped an image of Martin Luther King in my head. <laughs> but I remember every time I would imagine that video camera while she was speaking and I could feel myself getting defensive and I would lean back and keeping open body language because I knew that I didn't want to appear defensive and cross my arms in front of my body. So I leaned back and I would get this little Mona Lisa smile on my face. 
And I could see that it was kind of upsetting her that she couldn't get under my skin. And sometimes she would say something and I would lean forward in a really obvious active listening position and say, oh, I can understand why that might've been misunderstood. This is how I saw that conversation unfold. And I stayed so calm and I smiled and I tried really hard to, again, continue to imagine that video recorder. And when I walked out, I was incredibly satisfied with it. I remember feeling so calm and collected. But the kicker is this, Bill. The kicker isn't that moment because I did feel much better about that moment. It was a couple years later when I had another really difficult conversation with a colleague. It wasn't a boss. It wasn't somebody that necessarily mattered in the scheme of things, but it was a really difficult conversation that had to end well. And I did the same thing. I employed that same strategy of imagining a video camera. And the lessons I had learned from that previous experience were so perfectly applied that it felt like, uh, talk about a rock star moment. I walked out of that room feeling like I really accomplished something for me in terms of personal growth. Let's break that down a little bit, Sarah, because it's so important that people could realize that you weren't being inauthentic with her. You were just choosing how to present yourself based around a choice you made to really emphasize grace, compassion, and dignity. And all of us can make those choices. And they don't have to be those three words. They could be anything that will serve you by bringing out those qualities to the foreground. And you did that and you became not only the actor in that scene, but the producer and the director to actually say, this is how I want this to flow. You didn't just take and and respond to whatever she gave you. You said, I want to come out of this having shown grace, compassion, and dignity. So I think that's really important that you chose that. Did you choose different words when you did it the second time? Do you recall? (laughs) You know, it's funny you asked that. I did. I chose the same words. And I think that that has a lot to do with our personal brand and how we want to come across. And those are words that if I were to walk away from a conversation or if God forbid something happened to me, those are the words I would want used for my legacy. That's big. That's a level of legacy identity rather than maybe situational identity. And you were able to bring that forward in at least two situations, probably many more, but those are two that stand out. And I think everyone listening could find three words that they want to represent themselves as their legacy. And that's really the purpose of this, isn't it, Sarah? It's to help people see that they have more choices as to how to express themselves and experience the interactions we all have day to day. Absolutely. And I'd like to remind folks that you have an opportunity every day to do that. This isn't a one-time thing. And if something doesn't go the way that you intended, you still have the next day to try again. And I think it's really important to remember that because we all fail sometimes. I don't always handle things with grace, but that doesn't mean that I can't try again the next time because there's, there's no, there's no ending of that until you're not breathing anymore. Sarah, are you ready for the, my quest for the best lightning round? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So earlier I asked you about a person who influenced you growing up when you were a teenager, what's a song that you found inspiring? Pink Floyd, The Wall. That's it. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? Oh, that's an easy one. I paid a friend of mine to do weeding in our yard. I paid her just over $100 and she weeded an entire bed of my yard. And that was the best $100 I've spent in a long time. 
not only did that help her because things were really tight that week, but I now walk up to my house and I see this garden, this one bed that is so beautiful. And it just, it just makes me feel so much better to see it done. What would you say is the most effective way to get the word out about your mission about storytelling each week during the pandemic? The best way is really for listening to my podcast, which is Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, because I interview people and I do kind of the kind of coaching that I do with one-to-one individuals and with teams, but through the podcast. And what would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Oh, you know, one of the biggest beliefs that I stopped was associating success with income. I found that when I was able to disconnect that, I mean, there is a success level in income level, but it's separate from the success I feel when I'm working with clients. And the reason that's important is that if I was, when I was so focused on income, I wasn't as focused on the success that I bring to my coaching clients with workshops and individuals. So when I started focusing on how to make each session really successful in terms of what the client needed and what they needed to get out of whatever session or working with them on. The takeaway I get from that, Sarah, is that defining success in your own terms is the real pivotal moment. Yes, absolutely. I had to have somebody walk me through that. The impact you make in one-on-one sessions or with groups or in your workshops, that's really where the rubber meets the road and you gain the most satisfaction, I imagine. Exactly. And once I find where I get the most satisfaction, the income just kind of flows after that. Another story that I I loved in your book was the time when you were working on a very involved project to coordinate courses from across the state and show what equivalences were in order to allow people to transfer credits and maybe take different majors and that sort of thing. And you shared a spreadsheet by sending it out to people, asked people to update it and annotate it to make sure that it was accurately portraying what each course represented at each particular school and university. And somewhere along the line, somebody sorted it incorrectly, and then others had to still add in their comments, and it created a mess. Anyone who knows sorting spreadsheets, and if somebody sorts it without capturing all the rows and they sort a column, it's going to mess things up badly. Now, that created a problem not just for the person who did it, but you also wanted to avoid having upset the people who put in all the time putting in their comments and going through this because it was rather painstaking and detailed. I want you to just tell what happened from that point forward when you recognized what happened and then how did you remedy the situation? <laughs> oh my gosh, that was it was so stressful. It was, um, it was really a, a fantastic project that I worked on with a guy named Bill McGregor who was just a super diplomat and we were a great team. And thank goodness he was a wonderful boss for me because this situation would have been really ugly with the, the boss that I had after I had Bill as my boss. So basically, I learned one thing more than anything else, obviously, which was when you're working with a table that size, if you convert it to a table in Excel, it makes it so you can't missort it because it includes all the columns as a designated table. Just for those of you listening <laughs> that are dealing with really big Excel spreadsheets, 
make sure that you go to insert and make it a table because then you can't mess it up. <laughs> Just so everybody knows that. So when I figured out that the table had been messed up, the first thing I did was I reached out to my boss and the other colleague in our office that was working part-time on that particular project. And I explained what had happened. And I said, so my plan is to go back and find the most recent version that I know has all of the columns associated with the correct rows. So I have a plan. I'm going to go back through the, because we had a plan for version control. We did a save as and added our initials that I could go back to a version that was accurate. And then I was going to take the other versions and see if I could piecemeal them together to make sure that I acknowledged all the comments and shifts that people had made on the spreadsheet since then. And of course, they were reasonably upset None of us could figure out who had done the sorting wrong, and it didn't matter at that point. And I thought that was an important part of the conversation. I acknowledged that it could have been me, but I said, I don't know who did it, and it doesn't matter to me. What matters is that we fix the problem. And I can tell you that that alone, you could see the stress level drop in the room because I, I said that so specifically, it doesn't matter and placing blame isn't going to fix it. So at this point, we just need to, to figure out how to, how to fix the problem. What's the solution? So they agreed with my course of action. And I painstakingly went back through to find the most recent correct version. And I went through the other versions to try to see if I could figure out where certain courses had been switched and certain notes had been written that were associated now with the wrong course. And I was able to get it back to a reasonable, a reasonable version that there wasn't as much to do. And like you said, my, my big concern was we were working with faculty from across the state on this project. And we had spent hours in a room. I had facilitated this conversation to, uh, and it was full of conflict and friction because faculty really have a lot of ownership over their courses. And to tell them that they're gonna change the name and the number of their course that they've been teaching for 15 years, is not well taken. So it was really the most important thing to me was salvaging and making sure that I was careful with those relationships that I had developed with the faculty that they trusted me. And we did, we did figure it out. We got it so that it was right. And I did have a conversation individually with each of the faculty involved. And there were 14 of them on that particular subject area, which was math. And I talked to each one of them individually. I called them. I told them what had happened. I told them what my solution was. And I think that was part of why they trusted me was because I didn't try to sugarcoat it. I didn't pretend it wasn't a big deal. I just let them know exactly what was going on and asked them to pay special attention to their courses to make sure that I had accurately adjusted them in the spreadsheet. And it's through taking that reconstruction and not trying to place blame that you really do build trust. You took responsibility for making sure that the project was going to be successful. You wanted everyone contributing to it to still be engaged and not lose momentum or goodwill in the project. And it ultimately succeeded because of the way that this was handled. 
And I think everyone listening can relate to a story where there was a huge loss, maybe data or of a relationship or of materials, because someone didn't think things through or follow up or say the thing that everyone thinks just goes without saying. We all get so close to our work that it bears mentioning things that are so important. When you work with business leaders and helping them tell their stories to be more successful in their life and in their business, what's something that you would love to be able to share with people who are listening to this podcast now because it's one of the, the key misunderstandings of using stories effectively? I'm so glad you asked that question, Bill. I was interviewing an executive, a CEO of a company. He couldn't share a founder's story. I was asking him basically what his pivot point was, why he started this business, why it mattered to him. And eventually I was able to pull out a story about when he worked in the public sector and was struggling with collecting information from the, of his community where he was working. And what he was missing was the ability to truly inspire his employees and the funders of his organization with his own founder's story. Now, founder's story isn't about the company itself. And while it's important to know why the company was started in terms of the company's history, it's more important for a founder to be able to share why they started that company, what problems that it solves, but coming from a very personal place. And what this person finally understood, John, what he finally understood was that when he could share a story, similar to the guy that I talked about, Jeff, with the medical facility, when he could share a story that was personal, that explained his values, it helped the the employees become better brand ambassadors for the company because they could tell their own story about how their values align with the company and how the company's values align with the founder's values. So being able to share that personal story like Jeff did about the medical facility and and how he came to switch the type of facility he wanted to run was important for his employees to be able to understand why they should also care about the organization. They suddenly saw it from a different perspective and they became better brand ambassadors. What that did is it helped them pay more attention to the stories they told about their work and about where they worked and who they worked with. Stories help bind us. And two of the takeaways that I'm getting from this story that you just shared, Sarah, is that people don't know what values there are until the founder starts to share what it is that led him to found the company. The other thing is, is that the importance of details, it can't just be, I founded the company because I thought it was an important niche to fill. I'm sure that during every founder has a story about how they started, things didn't go well, how they had to regroup, how they had to really stay dedicated to their mission of bringing this solution into the world in order to succeed. And that's what allows people to really tell the story well, whether they are staff or salespeople or even investors or customers who also want to align with the values and principles and what a company epitomizes. Sarah Elkins, you've been so generous with sharing today. You started with sharing about your father's grandmother, what an example she was for you, and sharing that one lesson that really stood out, that she knew that a lot of her students didn't like her necessarily, but respected her. And that's what she strove for and how it helped you find your courage in order to stand up for yourself 
in being able to be effective and really looking to define how projects and work proceeded. And so long as that was on track, other things were secondary. You helped us understand that through rock star moments, we really need to remember those throughout our lives, throughout our days, because we all have them and they help us identify who we are and what we stand for. It's important to identify those values and then use our life stories to demonstrate support for those values. We talked about the worst interview question in the world, which is just pure laziness to say to somebody interviewing for a job, tell me about yourself. And if you're in the position where you're asked that question, the way to respond with stories from your story portfolio. Jeff was able to develop stories that helped him bond with the people in his medical facility and on his team by talking about the loss of his father and how he wanted to take his career in a different direction. And it really was a more satisfying example because of what he did. We talked about the example with John, who's a CEO who really got to tell his founder's story. Once he was able to share that, it really led to unleashing a lot of growth potential within his company. And then the framework that you shared about being able to be in a situation that you can anticipate. And if you could just think of different characteristics that you want to be remembered for just for yourself in that story where you were in that difficult situation with a woman who was literally out to get you and you wanted to be in there with grace, compassion, and dignity, how that changed your ability to interact in the moment and how it led to you really being proud of yourself rather than devastated by her attacks. For these and so many more reasons, Sarah, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. It was my pleasure. And Sarah Elkins, author of Your Stories Don't Define You, But How You Tell Them Will. Where can we find out more about you and your work online? You can certainly visit my website, Elkins, E-L-K-I-N-S, consulting.com. And I'd love for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. Terrific. We're going to make sure we link to those in the show notes. So if you're listening to this interview, be sure to visit the show notes. If you go to my quest for the best on Apple iTunes, the week that we're highlighting this, we're going to select somebody who leaves a comment and review of the show. And we're going to pick them in a raffle to win a copy of Your Stories Don't Define You but how you tell them will. Sarah's been generous enough to offer uh, several copies so that we could pick several winners. And we're delighted to do that. And we thank you so much for all that you've contributed. Sarah Elkins, thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill. And I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.